Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for what you have revealed in this passage, for how you have been working throughout history. And so, Father, we pray that you will help us to listen to these things, take heed, find comfort, and come closer to you. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The last time we looked at 1 Samuel, we see how the Israelites wrongly chose to use the ark and tried to work out their victory. God caused the defeat, and the ark of God was captured by the Philistines. It seems that God's people have been defeated, and God has abandoned them. The question that would have been on their mind would be, where is the glory? And this week, we will see the continuation of the narrative. We begin the narrative with the explanation in verse 1 that the Philistines captured the Ark of God and brought it to their city in Ashdod. Even more, it seems, to add insult to injury, they brought it into the temple of Dagon and set it up there. This is as if it's a conquered god from another land being made subservient before their god, Dagon. They believe that it was the power of Dagon that gave them victory. And they think of the God of Israel as a defeated God. Well, friends, we will see in our passage today that God is going to be working powerfully to disabuse them of this notion. And so, in verse 3, we see that early next morning, they entered the temple, only to find the deity Dagon flat on his face before the ark. It's intentionally written to be humorous. The supposedly victorious Dagon is now found prostrating as if giving worship to the supposedly defeated Yahweh. Embarrassed, they then had to carry their God and put him back in his place. The message is clear. This is an idol that has no power. We know it's not easy to see the emptiness of our own idols. And it is the same for them. So God makes the message clear. In verse 4, they enter the temple again, only to find Dagon's statue headless and handless. His head and hands have been chopped off and were left on the threshold, leaving beyond any doubt that this is the work of the new arrival of this conquered God. This may be Dagon's temple, but guess who's in charge now? Throughout the passage, we will see many reference to hands. And later, we will see how the Philistines will lament that the hand of the Lord is heavy on them. And here, we see that this demonstration of God's power is to show how his hand is mighty and is able to accomplish his will. And this is clearly meant to be contrasted to Dagon's hands, which are useless. When Dagon falls by the hand of God, he can't even rise up. And he needs to rely on the hands of his followers to be raised up. Then God again shows his mighty hand at work and cuts off Dagon's head and hands and casts them outside of Dagon's own temple, leaving only a block of stone, which is what Dagon is. We were meant to see that it is the hand of the Lord that has power, and there is no power in Dagon. This was never a battle between Yahweh and Dagon, but rather it's a one-sided battle that shows 
that Yahweh is the living God, active and powerful. Dagon is nothing. So having witnessed this, you would have expected them to realize the power of God and bow down before him. Yet what do they do? In verse 5, they realize, oh, we need to be careful because clearly Dagon is no longer in charge over the temple. It's this new God that they are brought in. Instead of rejecting Dagon, however, they continue to honor him by not stepping on the temple threshold where his head and, and hands had rested. If you think that is foolish, also note that up to the point that these events were written down, they were still entering the temple to worship this meaningless stone. And this is foolish because while it is the temple of Dagon, it is the God of the Israelites who is in charge. But instead of acknowledging his power and submitting to him, they instead still continue entering the temple. Now at this point, we may be tempted to laugh at their foolishness. And this passage is written in a humorous style to point us to the comedy of it all. But friends, if we realize how much we too can be like them, giving lip service to God, and then going out into the world to worship our own idols, then this comedy becomes a dark parody of our sinfulness. We each have our own personal dagons. But to worship anything but God himself, the living God, Yahweh, is utter foolishness. So check your own hearts and give your full attention to God. We come to verse 6 and we see that God is not done with the Philistines. He has shown them the emptiness of their idols. Now he shows his judgment upon them. His hand was heavy against them and a plague came to Ashdod. In verse 7, we see that they acknowledge that the problem is caused by the ark and this God that they have enmity with. The plague is really bad. Those who do not outright die were afflicted with tumour. There is no one who was spared. So in verse 8, they make a plan. They decided to send the ark to another city. And you see what's happening here is that once again, this pagan superstitious mindset comes into play. To them, they believe that gods are influenced by their territories. One god may be powerful in a particular place, but weaker somewhere else. So they're thinking, okay, if Yahweh is still powerful in Ashdod, let's bring him to Gath. And perhaps our gods are more established and powerful in Gath. So this shows us that while they have seen his awesome power, they're not willing to surrender and repent, but rather they want to seek to try and control God. And again, we see a reflection of our sinfulness in their attitude. How many times have we tried to manipulate and control God instead of repenting and letting go of our idols? In verse 9 then, they brought the ark to God, and again, the same thing happened. And this is the living God, and there is no controlling him. You cannot seek to make God submit to your will. But in verse 10, we see that they are still hard of heart, spiritually blind. And now, they try to move the ark to Akron. And this time, even as the ark came to Akron, those in the city start accusing them, you're trying to kill everyone. The Philistines, who have so bravely declared, be men and fight, are now reduced to a terrorized mob as they went against the God of the Israelites. 
In verse 11 and 12, we see that there his judgment continues and they suffer so terribly that their cries went up to heaven. And this echoes the same response that the Egyptians had when God visited them with the ten plagues. And if we remember Ichabod from last chapter, we have the same question, where is the glory? And here we see the answer. The weighty glory of God is being revealed through his judgment on the Philistines. Here, in the very heart of the enemy territory, the glory of God is revealed in its terrible beauty. And he deals with the Philistine and their god Dagon. This is what the author is showing us through the events. God's glory doesn't depend on his people. He is fully capable of bringing his own glory for his purposes. His glory is his own. And then in chapter 6, the Philistines come to a solution. In verses 1 to 3, after consulting with priests and the diviners, they wisen up and they decide to send the ark back. Then we see in verse 4 and 5 that they made gold images of tumors and mice to be sent with the ark as a guilt offering. And this is probably done for these things to be a representation of their problem, which the ark is meant to take away with it. And we see in verse 6 that the Philistines are aware of the events of the Exodus and they are afraid of the God of the Israelites. And if you pay attention, friends, This situation actually echoes what happens during the Exodus. The ark is moving towards freedom. The enemy has hardened their hearts despite facing supernatural judgment. And then they cry out to heaven and the ark leaves taking an offering of gold from them. The Israelites that reads these accounts will clearly see the allusion that God is working in the same way as he had worked during the Exodus. We then see in verse 7 that they take a careful and methodical approach so they can make sure if the problems that they are having is because of coincidence or is it because of the ark. If it's coincidence, they are going to keep the ark. They aren't concerned with doing the right thing or honoring God, rather only what is beneficial for them. So they set it up so it will be impossible for the ark to return. They purposely chose milk cows to be yoked to the cart. Milk cows don't normally pull carts, so they won't have the natural instinct to pull the cart. And they will not be good at working together to pull the cart. On top of that, they took the calves they were feeding from the milk cow, knowing that the natural response is for the mother cows to go find their children, which are back in the city. So then they load up the cart with the ark and the offering of God, and everything is set up to fail. Yet the cows went straight in the direction of Bethshemesh, neither turning left nor right. In verse 12, we also see that the cows were lowing all the way to indicate that they are in distress or they're looking for their calves. Yet still, they make straight the way of the Lord. And once again, by doing the impossible, God shows the Philistines that they are suffering because they have made enemies of a real God who has the power to afflict them. 
And then in verse 13, we see a conclusion to this journey that the ark has taken. And the ark returns to Israel and the people of Bethshemesh rejoice. At this point, we need to see this return of the ark as an answer to the problems that we have been seeing since chapter 1. The problem of an Israel that does things in his own ways, that has forgotten God. God reveals to them his power to reverse things, to judge the corrupt and to restore back Israel. And all these things that we read in our passage today is also meant to show them something about God. This is meant to show the readers that God is in control and he is capable of doing the things that he had promised. Thus in line with this, the ark, having revealed God's glory, having conquered the enemy, returns back to Israel. Not a single Israel was needed for God to be able to return or conquer the Philistines. He did it only by his hand. But now that the ark has returned, the question is, how will they treat God now? We see in verse 14 that this started well. They offer sacrifices. And in verse 15, they called in the Levites to handle the ark properly. And once again in Israel, sacrifices were offered to the Lord. A renewal, in a sense, of their response to the covenant between God and Israel. And at this point, we can ask, has the glory of the Lord returned to Israel? It would have been great if the narrative ended here. But that is not to be. In verse 19, God struck down 70 men. We aren't told clearly what happened, except that they looked at the ark of the Lord. Now, there are lots of explanations for exactly what they did, but for our purposes today, it is enough to know that they treated the ark with contempt and not honor. And thus, the hand of the Lord lashed out on these Israelites too. If we have been laughing at the humor of the disaster among the Philistines, we now have to stop and reflect on ourselves because suddenly there's nothing funny here with this judgment. God reveals that he is a holy God and that he will judge those who do not treat him rightly, even if it's his own people. And thus, we see in verse 21 that what started with joy and celebration quickly became a sobering event. The Israelites find it no more comfortable that God is with them than the Philistines did. God is not a tame God. He is not safe, but he is good. And we will see that as the narrative continues throughout our series on 1 Samuel. So we too shouldn't take God for granted. We shouldn't treat God in the wrong way. But rather, we are to submit to his ways. And so the narrative ends out with them reaching out to the men of Kiriath Jerim. And the message for them, take the ark and deal with it. What should have been a joyous celebration for God's people turns into disaster. And just like the Philistines, they too send the ark away. And with that, the ark comes to rest at Kiriath Jerim, the house of Abinadab. And we will see next week how the story progresses. But from here, we can see that security and salvation doesn't come from being affiliated with God, it comes with having a right relationship with him. So as we come to an end, there are a few things that we can draw from this passage that applies to us. Firstly, even the seeming defeat of God 
leads to great victory. We can see that in Jesus, as he was handed over to the Gentiles, died on that cross and was buried. But on the third day, he rose again in glory. What seemed like a humiliating defeat turned out to be God's greatest victory. Humiliation comes before glory. In a sense, that is our calling too, to humble ourselves, to give up the desires of the world, to be considered fools for the sake of the gospel. Yet, if we truly live according to how God wants us to live, we would suffer humiliation and defeat. We would be called foolish, but God will glorify you in the end. Even in your faithfulness, as you seek to do ministry, sometimes we can face failures and defeats. And this can be discouraging, but don't forget, humiliation comes before the glory. And on that day when Lord Jesus comes again, you will be glorified. Your sacrifice for the gospel will be celebrated. United to Christ, you will be glorified together with him. So let us look at our passage today as an assurance. Even God modeled the same action. He accepted the temporary humiliation for the sake of bringing salvation. Should we not then follow this example set by God? And for the sake of desiring the salvation of the world, be willing to suffer humiliation. If we are led by God, we can trust Him and just seek to be faithful despite what the world says. Next, throughout the passage, we see God's mercy clearly revealed. Now, it may be shocking because all we see is the plague and the tumors, but what is happening here is that God is revealing himself so clearly to the Philistines through his judgment. At any point, they could have turned to him for mercy. But instead, all they were willing to do was to send away this God who had the power so that they can continue worshipping their idols. And if you're hearing this and you are not a believer, what is your response to hearing about this God? Even the return of the ark must be seen as an undeserved favor. The Israelites have not merited anything in their actions to justify why God would return back to them after how they have rejected him. Yet for the sake of his covenant and his mercy, God came back to them. Even the death of the 70 was a warning about how to relate to God to curb their sinful excesses so they won't all follow that path of destruction. Even this COVID is a reminder that God is still judge. He's right to judge because even we, his people, persist in keeping our own idols. At this point, we need to clarify that it doesn't mean that those who get COVID are sinful and those who don't are not sinful, but rather as one humanity, we all treat God wrongly. We all worship other things in this world. And so these bad things that happen reminds us of our relationship with him and how we need to repent and treat him rightly. So remember, God is holy. He cannot be manipulated like the Israelites and the Philistines did with the ark. He cannot be treated with disrespect. Rather, we must come to him humbly and according to the means that he provides. So let us end in remembering the holiness of God. Reflect on how we are treasuring our own dagons in our lives and put these idols above God. Let us seek to try to respond to God rightly. God is sovereign. He is in control. 
and he is powerful. So let us not be like those people that we read about today and submit to him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, you are sovereign, you are powerful. And Father, we confess that we have sinned, that we hold to so many idols, power, money, wealth, relationships. Father, we, we ask for your mercy. We pray that you will help us to repent and treat you rightly. May all glory be to you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray.